No, not so. Let's go directly to meditation. Find the most comfortable position you can find. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. And calm the discursive mind with 21 breaths, counting one count at the end of each inhalation. Between counts, let the mind be as silent as possible. Now direct your mental awareness, single-pointedly, to one out of the six domains of experience, and that is the tactile domain, the field of the body of somatic sensations. Single-pointedly here, selectively. Be aware of the sensations arising throughout this entire field, 
and with a specific interest, selective attention, focusing on those sensations correlated with the in and out breath. Now let the space of the body fill the space of your mind. And the space of the body is non-conceptual. So fill the space of your mind with the space of your body and these non-conceptual sensations arising within this field. So there's no room for thoughts, memories, fantasies, and so on. Focus there, remain there. And without thinking about it, simply note when the in-breath is long, note that. When the out-breath is long, note that. When it's short, note that. But you don't need to think about it. So keep this simple. A non-conceptual flow of cognizance, of knowing, sensations arising within the somatic field and noting the duration of each in and out breath whether it is long or short.
let your eyes be gently open. Rest your gaze in the space in front of you without focusing on any object. And now direct your attention single-pointedly, again to one domain of experience, this time of course, the domain of the mind. And settle your mind in its natural state.
with the final moments of the session. Rest in non-meditation, without being distracted to appearances or grasping onto the mind. So, let's return to the text. It's Mahamudra chapter, in which he's really laying the foundation here, it seems, for all of the preceding chapters. Very interesting strategy. So, if I remember correctly, we just, did we just, just finish the, uh, this very brief citation by Sakya Pandita? And then Gutsamba. Read Gutsamba also? Anybody remember? Say again? Non-Buddhist. Non yep. Oh, Non-Buddhist. Oh, then we have a very short one by Sakya Benjie. Sakya Pandita says, Shamatha. I think I read that. doesn't matter. Yeah, I read that. Shamatha in which the eight fields of experience, eight fields of experience have ceased. Not six, but eight. Is a parody of, sh of the Shravaka cessation. That's the Nirodha Samapati or Gokpe Nyomjuk in Tibetan and it causes rebirth as an animal, right? So the eight fields. Only thing that comes to mind is, um, I mean, it could be the four jhanas and the four samapatis, but I don't think so, in which they've ceased. It's more likely, uh, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> then I'm totally certain. <laughs> when I say I don't know, then you can't debate me. <laughs> I win. <laughs> So what it is, is, you know, just sh sh shut down, blackout. That's a parody of the Shravaka sensation or, yeah, absorption in cessation, which you might recall is achieved only after you've achieved all the form, f form 
jhanas, all the formless jhanas, and what it is, I think you have to be at least a stream enter, if not a once returner. So it's way up there. It's a parody of that. It's a mere facsimile of that. His simple point is that if you simply regard the shutting down of the mind as the end point, well, then you've missed it. Good samba says, in a similar vein, I think such meditation entailing blocking ideation is simply non-Buddhist. Okay, if that's all you're doing, then there's nothing uniquely Buddhist about that at all, right? And it may be really just deviating off it. Of course, and you know it now so well, I can just move right on through. If you've lost that flow of cognizance, if you've slipped into dullness, then you're, there you are. So, but here, but here we move on forward. forward. When that first happened to J. Dusun Kemba, this is the first Kamapa, he consulted Dakpo. Dakpo is Gampopa. Dakpolaje, he's called. Dakpolaje. He consulted his guru, Gampopa, who was a disciple of Milarepa, and was told, when he told, he told him, I'm just kind of having total blackout, then Gampopa said, oh, that's the worst. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> that really takes something to speak of the first Gampopa. Yeah, that's the worst. <laughs> well, but that's what the guru does, you know. So that's the worst. Be, be careful of getting into that, and uh, don't stop there. R- when Raga Ase, now Raga Ase is the personal name of the author of this text, Kamachame, that's him, Raga Ase. He's referring to himself in the third person. When Raga Ase had been practicing for just five years, a mere five years, you know, he was kind of getting warmed up, uh, he uttered a single line of a song of contemplative experience called Nyamgur, like Milarepa's songs of experience, Nyamgur, it's that which resulted in his, so he's uttered a single line of a song of contemplative experience, which resulted in his slipping for a moment into shamatha, devoid of mindfulness. Now you've heard that, right? Now clearly that can have different interpretations, but on the authentic path, which of the four, which of the four uh, mindfulnesses is it? Mm, dana. Third, yeah, third. So you know exactly what that is. And so in that trajectory, taught by Padmasambhava himself, you haven't deviated, you're not on the wrong path. He didn't say, you know, don't get there. He said, get there and don't stop, right? Really clearly. But if you stop, then you aren't anywhere at all. So, which resulted in a slipping for a moment into shamatha devoid of mindfulness. If one takes that to be meditation, if you think that's it, now this is, oh, this is the one taste, this is, this is freedom from conceptual elaboration, this is texture or whatever, which happens a lot, I think, even, in, well, it's no question, it happened a lot in Tibet. Not just for us, you know, newcomers. Uh, if you take that and think, this is supreme now, you know, I have some high Dzogchen or Mahamuda real- realization, or the pranas are coming into the central channel, this must be the innate mind of clear light. If you think that, then it's a, f- it's a false path, for it is simply a portent, a portent, an omen, a sign, an indicator that a meditation will arise. Well, you know exactly what that means then. You have single-pointed mindfulness, Manifest mindfulness, absence of mindfulness, and then the next one's the jackpot. You know, that's, I mean, it's not ultimate, but it's really worthwhile. And that is, what's it called? Self-illuminating mindfulness, yeah. Where the awareness inverts upon itself, and then it's just, you've inverted right in upon the very nature of light itself. Okay, so good, very clear. So this, you know, that's the whole idea of having this first seven and a half weeks that when reading this, then kind of the meaning leaps off the page, right? You're not, we're not perplexed. And now he gives a story. Once the son of a traveler was out cutting wood and went into a cave to rest. The son of a traveler, interesting. While sitting in the meditative posture, he, da- he entered a dazed state of shamatha, 
devoid of mindfulness. So one of those people that just spontaneously slips in. It happens. His companions look for him, but of course he gone into a cave, right? His companions look for him to no avail, and he was given up for lost. The following year, some travelers pitched camp there. One of them said that this was the place his nephew had been lost the previous year. They went to cut wood and found the boy sitting in the proper meditative posture. They called to him and gathered in front of him, at which point he came out of his trance and asked, Are you ready to go? <laughs> so there's a lot of stories like that. I'll tell one more. It's, uh, it's one that maybe we have no idea when this took place, and it doesn't really matter, but one that Gyan Lamrimba told me. It's a nice story. Not everybody's heard it, right? Uh, it's quite a sweet story. Um, and I, I, I just, it, it absolutely has the resonance of truth to me. And he told it. This is a great yogi, outstanding, you know, very accomplished yogi. And so the story is that there was one great, um, really accomplished uh, lama, real adept, a lama, uh, from eastern Tibet, probably Kham, Amdo, whatever. And he was heading to Lhasa to meet with the great lamas there, right? And so, but it's a long trip, and I think they might have been even on foot, so that can be three months. Three months on foot, two months on horseback, depending on where you are in Kham and so forth. So the lamas traveling with his attendant was very common. And each day they would, they would walk for maybe, who knows, maybe 10, 12 miles. And then when it got late afternoon, then they would, they would pitch camp. And the, the attendant knew what his job was, make some tea, make some nice, good, rich, buttery tea. And the yogi would go into, uh, and then he'd have his tea. And, maybe, and, then, and then he would meditate through the night. But after he finished tea, the yogi would just med- meditate right through the night. And the attendant, ordinary guy, he would sleep. Uh, but every morning, the attendant had to follow his, his lama's instructions. And the lama's instruction was, look, I'm meditating through the night, but when the tea is prepared in the morning and we're ready to set out on the next leg of the journey, then just call me. Tea's on. Tea's on. And he's cued himself. If you're very deep in samadhi, you won't hear anything. But, but just like a mother who wakes up when her baby cries and so forth, uh, he cued himself that if, if the sound tease on, if that came through, he'd wake up. If it was just some thunder or lightning or whatever, you wouldn't hear it. Just stay in samadhi. Just would, it would not register. So day after day, week after week, it's a long, long trip. Uh, they're f- heading out west to Hlasa, and finally they're just a you know, day or two journey outside of the city, getting very close. The attendant's kind of an ordinary guy, and uh, he's had a long trip, and it must have been awfully boring for him every day just more trudging along, making tea, a bit of tzamba. And so he, he can basically, he's like a, like a horse coming back to the barn, you know, he can smell the hay, he's ready to... And so he's seeing it just, you know, he's faster than the, he's faster than the Lama. And he's just, he knows he's really, really close. And he wakes up one morning, he's about to prepare the tea, he sees the yogi deep in meditation. And he just gets really impatient, he said, oh, let him make his own tea. You know, we're almost there, when, where's the harm? He wants to go into town, you know, entertainment, fun, maybe, you know, cool stuff. He just takes off. He takes off and leaves the yogi meditating there. But this fellow is he's, he's also very devout. So when he makes his way to Lhasa, the attendant, he makes his way to Lama, he, well, he, he meets the great Lama that the, his Lama was planning to meet. Great, you know, great, great Lama. I don't know which one. And uh, so he comes in, he offers his prostrations, probably offers a kata. And the, the great lamas just takes one look at him and says, where's your lama? 
and the attendant said, uh, he's coming. And the great Lama, big clairvoyance, said, no, he's not. Go back and get him. So probably two weeks, two days hike, two days hike back. There's a Lama sitting in meditation, just like a Buddha. He makes some tea, tea's on, <laughs> and then the Lama comes up. So something very odd happens. Uh, something very odd happens when one goes deep into samadhi. I have a file on my computer. Uh, what do they call it? Boy Buddha, something like that. I, I think they exaggerated a bit. There's no indication that he was a Buddha. But there was a Nepalese boy, uh, who now must be a young man, became quite famous about, what, 10 years ago or so? And he clearly had very strong, what I think what is incontrovertible is he had very deep samadhi. And he would remain almost motionless for day after day after day after day after day. Uh, and it wound up creating quite a circus, people coming to see him and so forth. Interestingly enough, I have not heard a peep out of that any longer. One would kind of think maybe become a great teacher. Nothing came out of it. So maybe he's just a hidden yogi, not for me to judge. But it is widely known, especially in the, in the Buddhist, Hindu and Buddhist traditions. But I'm sure you're going to find it in Taoism and other traditions. When people go into deep, deep samadhi, then the body really shifts deeply. And you would think after maybe spending four days in meditation without moving, your legs would be asleep, you couldn't move your leg, your, your knees would be all seized up and so forth. It's not the case. Something very, hap very unusual happens to the body. And it has everything to do with the prana. The prana is flowing. And if you've achieved shamatha, you've done a total revamp, a kind of a total tune-up, a massive tune-up of your prana system. And so then, you know, the body is a very different body. You've really shifted not only your mind, but your body. So there was one story. There are many other stories like that. So in this context of practice, oh, oh, we have a bit more. So he said, are we ready to go? He wasn't even aware that a year had passed, right? There was not even, and again, you don't starve to death. That's a very interesting thing. This, this boy, he, I think he didn't eat anything for months. And there was, a, not long ago, there was a, a yogi, a Hindu swami, that the scientists studied, and he wouldn't even drink water. And he hadn't done so for years, and the scientists, Indian scientists, wanted to check that out, and I think, they, I think they just studied him for weeks. Two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and he would just be in samadhi, but not even water. Sometimes he would just, because his mouth would get dry, he would rinse his mouth with water, and then he would spit it out, and they'd measure to make sure that what he spit out was what he took in. They just wanted to check, you know. And uh, they came out with just one more anomaly. Yes, he's not eating anything. Yes, he's not drinking anything. And no, uh, I mean, medical doctors know exactly what happens if you do that for a couple of weeks or six weeks. Everybody knows what happens. And there was just no damage. He was very slender. But, um, you know, so there are mysteries here that they just don't fit into our dominant paradigm. And so they become invisible. You know, invisible to people who just just don't want to question their worldview because it's so uncomfortable. So, so there was not even anything wrong with his body after one year of sitting in meditation. Later on, he entered the gateway of Dharma, so that wasn't, but he primed himself. Just, I've said so many times before, achieve shamatha, or even going into the jhanas, and you're, you've come to the on-ramp of the freeway. And if you just go a bit further, then boom, there you go, you're on the freeway. If you stay there, then of course you're not. But he did enter the gateway. He got off the on-ramp, got onto the freeway, and became a siddha known as 
menyak gomring, gomring. So in this context of practice, if you have a, if you have a good contemplative background, in the experience of the luminosity of shamatha, if you've really gone into it, that's and well, let's interpret it, self-illuminating mindfulness, you have fully achieved shamatha. There are facsimiles of the t- facsimiles of the ten signs. So, a number of you have studied stage of completion, zokrim, and you'll notice, it w- and you you know you've studied it, you know, and you'll know that in, in the successive stages of the prana coming into the central channel, into the heart chakra, into the indestructible bindu, you know, there's a whole series of signs. Okay, they vary slightly from kala chakra to guya samaja, but they are signs of this profound dissolution, profound transformation of your body, really deep, really, really deep. Uh, and so it's kind of cool that I've mentioned before that the nine stages leading up to shamatha, they have facsimiles with the path to enlightenment itself. You know, it's, uh, that's all it is, but nevertheless, it's not trivial. And here we see once again, it's very interesting, really, that <coughs> as you are simply moving towards shamatha itself, and you're moving into the, how do you say, into the substrate, there are facsimiles of something one could say immeasurably deeper, instead of your mind dissolving into the substrate, your mind entirely is dissolving into the innate mind of clear light. Okay? So that's immeasurably beyond, but quite interesting that facsimiles of the signs occur, and here's what they are. So these are images, appearances that arise. In your field of vision, in the field of your vision, there appears smoke, fireflies, a mirage, an oil lamp, the moon, the sun, something like the light of a fire, a sphere, a pot of light, and the colors of the rainbow, etc. Even if you close your eyes, you still see them clearly, and you see and experience many things, including sentient beings, forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations, and so on. Let's just check what the footnote is. I didn't, haven't checked it recently. Ah, yeah. So the ah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I had forgotten that. But but in the leap over phase, of course, there are many many visions that come up. And Gatrudamuchu commented here simply that the facsimiles of these ti- ten signs are similar to the types of visions that occur in the direct crossing over practice of the Great Perfection. That's footnote 51. Well, what's happening on the, on the direct crossing over phase of Dzogchen is what is happening when you're very advanced in the stage of completion. I mean, you're really coming down the home stretch to Buddhahood itself. Yeah. Oh, lasso. And so now the uh, Lanka Avatara Sutra, Lanka Avatara, very, very famous sutra, very important Mahayana Sutra, the descent into Lanka Sutra states, due to contemplative diligence in the meditative stabilization, that is jhana, experienced by children, children are those people who have not become Aryas, ordinary people, okay, who are not yet Aryas, not on the Arya path yet. So, but people have achieved jhana, that's nothing to, you know, dis- to disparage. Such people, so due to contemplative diligence in the, medita- the jhanas experienced by children, non-aryas, a jhana that examines reality, okay, and you can just read the footnote for that yourself, then, then jhana focus on suchness, that's where the jhana is completely fused with shamato, or, or excuse me, with, with vipassana, really supporting vipassana, and like, likewise, virtuous jhanas, as a result of all of these, but jhana, 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 that's the common factor. This is an uh, enormously important point here. Common factor of the jhanas, 
of the higher jhanas and the samapatis, for example, the formless realms, jhana as the foundation for vipassana, and of course it's, it's jhana as the vipassana, at least the uh, access to the first jhana, as the, the foundation for tekcha and tutgal, yeah? for all of those. You see things like the shape of the sun and moon, and this is in a sutra. See, you see things like the shape of the sun and moon, like light and a lotus, like design, space and fire. These various signs lead to non-Buddhist paths, and they cast you down to the experience of Shravakas and Paratyeka Buddhas. Okay, there are facsimiles of these much deeper ones. Let's just check what that th- uh, 54 is. I've been kind of meditating all day. I needed to catch up, and so I haven't checked here. Well, it just, it just, uh, well, the tr- translation is exact. Yeah. So in any case, he's really emphasizing that, you know, the, just the jhana factor, the, the mundane vipassana, mundane vipassana. This leads to non-Buddhist paths, and they cast you down to Shravaka Prajega Buddha. Well, that's not too bad. So that would include not only mundane vipassana, but also super-mundane vipassana, but without bodhicitta, without vajrayana, these various sides lead to, okay, when you let go of all those and are left with no appearances, that sounds more like non, uh, non-meditation, then the divine, land, uh, divine hand of the Buddha calms them all and strokes you on your head. This is an indication that you are truly following him. Clearly then, this is a Mahayana Sutra. That means, okay, now you're on the Mahayana path. Okay? The commentary is worth reading. Please do so at your leisure. Whatever amazing visions occur, and these are the nyam. So recall, it's understanding, then the nyam, meditative experiences, realization, and then acquiring confidence. It's really worth recalling. Whatever amazing visions occur, they are minor signs of shamatha, but that is not the actual meditation, not the main event. Then the first mental state, these are minor signs of, med- of, of, of shamatha, and that is even very early on. I, I've been teaching this a long time. I mean, long repeats for eight years, and I've been teaching shamatans since 1976. Uh, so, you know, I hear a lot. And some people just beginning, they'll start having, I think in the first week, in a weekend retreat, some people will start having big, strong surges of bliss, and so forth, you know. People come in with very diverse backgrounds. Interestingly enough, one, one person comes to mind, um, big bliss coming in very, very early. Never really settled down to develop a robust meditative practice. Never did any long retreats. Kind of like very comfortable in his life. Nice fellow. But he's not following a yogic path. And yet he had this great big, come hither, come hither. Bliss is here. And he said, yeah, that's cool. And then, you know, went back and did other things. So it just reinforces there really is no substitute for renunciation. It's very nice to have bliss, but then you can have sex with your wife, and that's very nice too, and then you can go off to a really wonderful vacation and, you know, some wonderful place, and that's really nice too. So meditation is just one more of really cool things. That, that easily happens. So this is what Gyatrudamachi would so often emphasize. You must realize the nature of the, f- the first noble truth. You must realize that. You must realize the nature of the second noble truth. Only then will a, will a motivation arise that is durable, that's robust, that carries you through adversity and felicity, happy days, bad days, ups and downs. When you see that there is, you have that, that recognition, there is no hope of finding the happiness you're seeking in samsara. And frankly, I just, I've, I've never seen, 
I've never seen, that is, what do I know? But from my perspective, that's all I can say. From my perspective, I've never met anybody who is holding kind of a materialistic view of reality and the notion, and had as a working assumption that death is simply termination. I know a lot of fine people who hold those views. Ethical, benevolent, kindly, generous, virtuous. And so they're sowing a lot of you know, seeds for very good rebirth. But I've never met one. And it's just my observation. And maybe I'm totally wrong, but it's still my observation. I've never met one person like that who developed authentic renunciation. Because their assumption is, hey, all I have to do is die. <laughs> and then I've, I've hit the cessation of suffering. So why don't I enjoy my life? And that will include some meditation. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, those are early signs, minor signs. But that's not the actual meditation. Then the first mental state. So we see now a different kind of f f formatting. The, the content's the same, but we've had nine stages, which are very well known from the sutras and through all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. We have the four mindfulness, the format that Padmasambhava pre presents. Uh, in the Sharp Vajra Conscious Awareness Tantra, and I was give, give, give another kind of format of stages of meditation. So let's attend closely. This is not quite the same as what we've heard in the past, but this is right from the sutras. So it has a very strong basis. So then the first mental state arises. Okay, what first mental state are you, right, are you referring to? Well, here we have a marvelous source. It's, v again, a very famous Mahayana Sutra. The Sutra of the Questions of Ratna Chuta. Child of the Family. This, which is ever so swift and moving without pause, like a monkey in the wind, like the current of a stream and like the flame of an oil lamp, which moves afar without a body, which thinks of objects and has for its fields of experience the six sense bases, that's the six sense sensory fields, this mind that knows the minds of others, that is single-pointedly stable without dispersion, which remains single-pointedly in shamatha and without distraction. This is mental stability. This is mental stability. Okay? You see a lot's packed in there. Okay? He's essentially talking about a lack of distraction, of distracted, wandering mind. He says explicitly, single-pointedly stable, but it's also very interesting, this mind that, this mind that knows the minds of others. It's a very clear indication. It's not even an interpretation. If you achieve shamatha, then this is, you've tapped into, it's a metaphor, that's all I can use. It's like, if you've, you know, imagine a bunch of ranches in a, in a large, like a big valley, a bunch of ranches. Uh, but this big valley has, you know, an underground, a, a lot of uh, gr groundwater, a lot of groundwater, great big lake under the, under, the, under the water, right? And so each ranch has its own, its own spring. Okay, and if you're drinking out of out of your spr spring, you don't know what the other guy's spring tastes like because your water's over here and his water's you know a quarter of a mile over there, and there's another one over there a mile away. So everybody just drinks from their own spot. Um, Morgan's already figured it out, so I could just stop talking. <laughs> but if you've tapped into if you m became a scuba diver, and you went down your well down to the groundwater, then you would. If you wish, you could tap into anybody else's spring. Now it's not. It would immediately sound like, oh, this is the Jungian collective unconscious. That would make a lot of sense. But it's not. 
It's not, that's not the case. It's not collective. It's your own continuum. carries your own unique karma, not collective karma. Your own. So there, once again, remember the remember one among the four imponderables. This is one of them. That is, tap into that access to the first jhana. Tap into your substrate consciousness. You don't need to go, you know, deeply into the form realm. There's no reference to it here. And uh, if you wish, you can direct your attention to other people's wells. You may tire of it very quickly. <laughs> really, be, be careful of what you wish for. <laughs> so, but there it is. So it's single-pointed, it's without dispersion, and there it is without distraction. That's stability. Well, it is. It's, it's the stillness of awareness that's durable. Okay? Tilopa, the great Mahasiddha says, the initial task the initial task is like a, a river in a narrow gorge. Okay? Now, when I teach, I, I very, very often taught a one-week shamatha retreat. Many, many times I have the same set of notes. I never play them the same way, but it's the same score. It's the same music. And there, drawing from Lama Mipamaramache, and, and I'm sure he did not make this up, is common to the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions. I think more in the Mahamudra is my sense. There are these classic metaphors. They're really quite lovely. The first one is a cascading waterfall. The second one is a mountain brook. The third one is a river flowing down through a, a river valley. And then the, whatever the number was. The next one is an ocean unmoved by waves. And the final one is Mount Meru. Mount Meru. So waterfall, mountain brook, river valley, ocean, and then Mount Meru. Okay? These are really quite lovely metaphors. And so that's Mahamudra. Maham, those are Mahamudra uh, metaphors. And, you c- and they are mapped onto the nine stages. Lama Mipam did that. Uh, but here, he's going right to the second one. First, the cascading waterfall. I mean, the mind is just, you know, chaos. But when you, sl- when you move on a bit, then it's still a lot of action, a lot of movement, a lot of thought, and so forth. But it is more focused. So Tilopa refers to that. Zhang Rinpoche says, when the first mental state occurs, there is an unceasing flow of, th- of thought or ideation, like boulders rolling down a steep mountain and you feel you cannot meditate. So he's referring to the same state as the one before, by Tilopa. And that would be the second metaphor, quite clearly. That sense of the amount of ideation that is occurring is itself a slightly stable consciousness. Now you should really have some taste of that by now. Mm. Right? The stillness of your awareness in the midst of the movements of the thoughts. This is like stage two, stage three, right? Stage four. <laughs> uh, the cascading waterfall actually goes from stages one to three. And this one's actually stage four. But I would, I'm going to do an interpretation here. Uh, and the interpretation, which I always teach when I'm leading a one-week retreat, is my sense is, just my interpretation, so somebody else can refute me, that's fine, uh, is that these metaphors are especially relevant to, most explicitly relevant to people who are engaging in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. Because my very little experience is that if you're from the very beginning really focusing on mindfulness of breathing, every every outbreath you're releasing, releasing whatever thought comes up, you release and you release. The thoughts calm down relatively quickly. I mean, not they're not muted, but they really do calm down. And so, if you're on stage two or three, and you've been practicing mindfulness of breathing, the thoughts have really subsided, because that's what you want them to do, right? 
Whereas if you're practicing settling the mind in its natural state, then a core instruction is do not prefer for the thoughts to subside. Keep your attention stable, your awareness still, and let the thoughts do whatever they do. That's really doing the practice, right? In that case, then the flow of thoughts, the, the how do you say, the magnitude, the number, the amount of thoughts doesn't subside quickly, right? But what is increasing is your stability. So from that increasingly stable or still perspective, you're recognizing, wow, there are a lot of thoughts. But it's more like it being a, a boulder in the middle of the stream rather than a chip of wood. Okay? So that, that sense of the amount, the sheer magnitude of thoughts that are occurring is itself a slightly stable consciousness. You've got that. That's the still unflickering candle flame. Before there is any stability or stillness, before there's that, ordinary ideation spills out. And even though it is constantly surging forth, it is not recognized. This is classic. Geshe Ngomantaiki mentioned this yeah, more than like, a long time ago. And that is the first indication that you're really making some progress in shamatha practice is you recognize with some degree of astonishment, man, I never thought my mind was that screwed up. Just in sh- t- 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 the sheer noise, the volume, the kind of like, whoa, does it ever stop? And the answer is, not soon. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it can over time. But again, uh, the analogy I thought of years ago, because I've been teaching a long time ago, but being like in downtown Manhattan or in any big, big city, but Manhattan is really dense. And imagine walking around downtown Manhattan, uh, with like so many people do, with their ear jacks in, they're listening to some music, or, or they just have noise-canceling headphones on. And maybe they're, maybe they're, they're Buddhist monks, and they're w- walking with their eyes down, you know, one yoke in front of them. So they're really not looking at all the traffic, the people passing by, their eyes are right down, and they're wearing those ho- noise-canceling headphones. And so if you were doing that, then you might not really be aware of just how loud, how noisy, how busy downtown Manhattan is, because you'd just be seeing a few steps in front of you, and it'd be quite quiet, right? And that at any point, if you lift your eyes up, take off the headphone, like, go into shock, right? That's what early phases of shamatha is like. That, and it's for a very simple reason. For the moment, what we attend to is reality. I quote William James again, and that is where, especially in the modern world, but just generally too, throughout the course of a day in any major city, but also pretty much towns and everywhere, where is our attention focused almost all day, every day? The desire realm. Because it's out there that I can get stuff I want. And it's out there that people and situations are getting away, getting in the way of what I want. Therefore, heads up! Who's going to make me happy? What's going to make me happy? How much dessert is there tonight? Is it enough? It's going to be enough? Can I come in late? Will I get it? Will I lose out on dessert? Shall I ask somebody to get dessert for me before? Etc. Etc. So when the attention is outwards, we don't know how much noise there is in the mind, you know. And then when you go into a quiet place into basic sensory deprivation, then you think this is louder than New York City, and that's your first sign of progress. So interesting. He's gone to the top of the mountain here, right? He went into non-meditation. And now he's talking about baby steps in shamatha. There's a big message here. It's not very veiled. There's a big message here. In case you skip this, don't. Maybe that's why I'm such a fanatic on shamatha. You know, 
That's where my teachers have led me, from Geshe Ngaman Taigi and Geshe Rapten and His Holiness and Gyatri Rinpoche and on, you know. They got me. Happy they did. So, even though it's constantly surging forth, people don't recognize it. They, don't, they think they're sane. They think they're sane. Where, again, we've been through it all, just really briefly, just recall. If brain scientists, you know, keep on making the progress they are, it's not inconceivable that they might be able to so fathom the workings of the brain with the EEG and all of that, that they might get kind of a Rosetta Stone. I mean, they th many of them think they will, that they could actually translate your brain activity and read your thoughts by re reading the EEG. And they might even, who knows, read your images. I mean, the visual cortex is very big. And so imagine that monitor. Everybody's got a monitor, an audio-visual monitor. That big brother, Donald Trump, President of the United States, says, you know, I, it's now the law. Everybody wears this. It'll cut down crime. And everybody walks around with a monitor. So every image that comes to mind and every thought that comes to mind is being broadcasted to everybody around you. How many people would think you're surrounded by sane people? We're, we're just privately insane. And that's what makes it tolerable to be with each other. We're discreet. <laughs> Never mind me. Oh. <laughs> so cute. So both the ocean of definitive meaning, the Ranjo Dojerwe, Medungato. Ranjo Dojerwe? Again, I corrected me. This is one of the great classics, really one of the greatest classics in the entire Mahamudra tradition by, I believe he was the fifth, wasn't he? Maybe fifth? Ninth. Ninth. Oh, oh, way off. Thank you. I have somebody who knows what he's talking about here. It's not me. But the Wanju uh, Dorje, ninth Karmapa, he wrote this text. It is certainly considered one of the greatest classics in the entire Mahamudra tradition. So both the ocean of definitive uh, meaning and the, ocean, the oral transmission of the lineage of Siddha's state, they both come on the same point. At first, it seems as if the mind is firmly stabilized on the meditative object, but that is just the beginning. It seems like it is. But then, then little by little, it seems as though there were basically more thoughts than before. But in fact, there are not. You're simply turning on a brighter light. You're attending to the space of the mind. What you attend to becomes your reality. And now the chaos of your mind is becoming real for you. And that can, I've seen this happen many times in these three months and, and uh, eight week retreats that I've led. I've seen that happen many, many times uh, of people really, and a lot of with not much background in Dharma at all, some rather really quite, quite fresh, coming in and doing a lot of shamatha and I, I always encourage some poor measurables on the side, bring some moisture to it. And then in the course of eight weeks, I've seen many people really develop some pretty strong facsimile of renunciation without believing in reincarnation necessarily, having really strong conviction and going through the four thoughts that turn the mind, meditation on the six hell realms and this three types of suffering and six times of suffering and eight times of suffering, which is a perfectly legitimate way to proceed, but it also can make one as tight as a twisted barbed wire fence, depending on how you approach it. Uh, and I found people really shifting priorities when they see, my goodness, my mind is a, it's just a mess. And how can I think of bringing this mind to a relationship, this mind to a job, this mind on vacation? That's not going to work out. 
And then you see, wow, as long as I'm bringing this mind, the notion of finding some lingering sense of well-being and happiness and fulfillment, not with this mind, even with all the help in the world, not with this mind. Right. And that is then turns into renunciation. Okay, let's read on. This is really good here. So, you feel like there are more thoughts than before, but that's not true. Until now, due to not meditating, and this is, again, this is written some centuries ago in Tibet, uh, rural and and rural and nomadic. So this, these are universal truths. This is not just for people living in big cities, but it's all the more true for us now. Until now, due to not meditating, you are unaware of the occurrence of thoughts even when they were arising. You're not attending to them. Now, and there's always that cognitive fusion. You think you're thinking this, you're thinking that. Yeah, this is like a, you know, like that in the little Miss Sunshine, the, uh, you know, the car driving away with a little dog tied to the back bumper and the dog thinking it's driving in the car. Well, you're not. You're going to be beaten up by that car. Right? You're not thinking in the car. And so Tsongkhaba says, until you've achieved shamati, you don't have a mind. You have a, the mind has you. See who's in the driver's seat. Try to drive your car for one minute straight and see who's behind the steering wheel for 60 seconds. <laughs> it's kind of like getting in one of the cars, not quite cars, but like jets, where there's a little ejector button, and you're going, ah, oh, dee dee, ping! <laughs> Suddenly you're flying, blah, 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 like that, you know. Where's my car? Where's my car? Yeah. So our minds have an, an ejector button that somebody else keeps on pushing repeatedly. Oh, yeah. So now, with the mind settled in meditative equipoise, they are noticed due to your lucid awareness. Do not block the various thoughts. So interpret it for yourself, but this looks to me like settling the mind in its natural state. Do not block the various thoughts, but let them be without following after them. Recognize the full extent of the thoughts that arise without being drawn into their undertow. Beautiful way of phrasing it. We call it nowadays without cognitive fusion. Without having to alter your practice sessions, if the flow of your meditation is unbroken, and it seems as if your awareness is streaming, I think we call that flow, that is called the first mental state, which is like a brook flowing down the side of a steep mountain. Okay, the second of the metaphors keeps on coming back. So that's it. Now, we, now it's pretty clear. He said it three times. That second metaphor, and among the, the nine stages, two and three. Actually, no, it's... No, no, it's actually four. Four. The first one's four. Because until the, the first three, it's all the cascading waterfall. Remember? Cascading waterfall. Stage four, when, you, when, you know, you, when you're free of coarse excitation, when you're no longer totally thrown off the object, that's when it's like a babbling mountain book. Remember? Hola, yeah. so. That is called the first... Me- uh, okay? But that is not like being carried away by a turbulent stream, splashing down a steep mountain and entering a narrow crevasse. Rather, it is like observing without obstruction. Obstruction, without observing without obstruction. In other words, you really do maintain a continuity of awareness of the very strong movements of the mind. But your awareness is relatively stable. Again, more like a, a boulder in the middle of the stream. Okay. So we, we're calling that the first one. So we're starting at stage four. Tilopa says, in the middle, 
So we have the initial state, and now we have middle state. It moves slowly like the Ganges River. Well, that's clearly, that's the river flowing down a, a river valley. Very, very different. Everybody knows what it looks like, no matter where you're from, except maybe the Sahara or the Aleutians. Okay. So it moves slowly like the Ganges River. So the movement is still there, but the mind is calmed. Not only your awareness, but the mind is calmed. Zhang Rinpoche says that then it is like a gently flowing river. Consciousness slows down and there are few thoughts. Okay, the sheer magnitude, the volume of thoughts subsides. Stage two. And uh, so, moving on. By observing and practicing in the previous manner, ideation diminishes. And you enter a non-conceptual state. Okay? Just exactly mapping what happens in settling the mind in its natural state. You enter a non-conceptual state, even though isolated thoughts occasionally occur for an instant. They do not continue, but vanish like snow that has fallen on a hot rock. So here's where the thoughts arise, but they do not correspond to excitation. They don't pull you away. Uh, yeah, so that, that's a nice image. No repercussions. Whatever thoughts surge forth, they are discerned. They come up, you see them, and reckoned with, and the flow of your meditation is unruffled. So you're going to much deeper stability now, much deeper stillness. When it happens in that way, that is called the intermediate mental state. Okay, so he's saying this now from multiple sources, all converging on the same point, which is like the slow descent of a great river. But it is not like being far away and failing to see properly how it is flowing. Rather, it is like seeing it right on the spot. So whatever's coming up, your stability is so good that it's just not the case that you're aware of thoughts only after they've come up and they've carried you away and then you're doing damage control, damage control, damage control. That's much earlier. It's called lende jokpa, lende jokpa, which is the third mental state, which is patching up. Patching up, remember that? So you're carried away, whoops, and you pick yourself up, like falling off a bicycle, pick yourself up, fall off, pick yourself up. Well, you're not falling off anymore. They come up, but they just have no grabbing power, right? So, looking good. Read Rinpoche's commentary. It's very, very helpful. The oral tradition of the spiritual mentor says, at this point, the second sensation is like the descent of a... Ah, so, the second sensation, I don't think I made a mistake. The second sensation is like the descent of a stream in a narrow gorge. Well, that would be corresponding to the broader matrix, where the first one is the cascading waterfall. And the second one was the stream in a narrow gorge. Yeah? So he's... If you're discerning, it's not confusing. Different, te different templates for exactly the same content. Sometimes it stays fairly serene, and sometimes it surges forth turbulently, that is, the mind. When there is scattering, relax and observe it. He could have said, relax, release, return, <laughs> but he said it his way. And when there is stillness, concentrate a bit and rest in that state otherwise known as make my day. If you slip into laxity and dullness, seven weeks after I've been telling you this continuously, and I'm sure you're not going to break my heart, what do you do when you have retrospectively recognized that your mind has slipped into laxity and dullness? What do you do? Refresh? Restore? Oh, you've made my day. Happy, happy.
yeah, that's it. And he, so you see where it comes from. I just made up those little, you know, re, 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 because it's kind of easy to remember, but he already said it. I didn't make up anything. Okay? So it's not my own, how do you say, self-fabricated dharma. Well, the Gulupas especially. You made that up. You know, the Gulupas don't like that. Nobody likes that. If you're just making up your own garbage. So I just make up terms. The meaning was already there. So this seems to happen <laughs> to many people. <laughs> yeah, probably so. People practicing shamatha and encountering scattering and dullness. Yeah, that happens. Yep. The glorious Tsuklak Tengwa says, maybe I'll just read one more. The glorious Tsuklak Tengwa says, again, withdraw the mind single-pointedly into thatness, just there, without labeling, cogitating, and so forth, just, just relieve it there. And most importantly, collapse inside, releasing all grasping, and relax as if you were resting after becoming exhausted. That's the advantage, by the way. I was actually very exhausted this um, morning. Didn't sleep much last night. And uh, there's an advantage to that, that you're really tired. It's very easy to relax. That's an advantage. Sometimes I've had some very good meditation when I have a cold. Because all I want to do, if, if I don't have to teach, that I don't care for. have to do it sometimes. But if you just got a cold and you can baby yourself and just lie in bed and drink hot lemonade with honey and just lie, you actually meditate pretty well. You're not thinking about, I have to do this, I have to do that. You say, oh, I'm taking a break. If you're dying, that's a pretty good occasion too. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? <laughs> it's a really good opportunity. What else are you going to do? So increase your investment portfolio? And look for a date? <laughs> Flirt with the nurses? I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> so without hopes that the meditation will go well or fears that it will not, with a spacious attitude, gently rest in the meditative posture and remain with an unwavering gaze. This results in a gentle subsiding of thoughts, with the body and mind imbued with a quiet, gentle, serene, and relaxed sense of well-being, and the physical posture being without discomfort. Even when you stop meditating, the mind does not become immersed in external activities, but remains in a stream of bliss and luminosity. This is just shamatha. All your bodily, verbal, and mental behavior naturally becomes gentle, serene, and relaxed. And at this time, you are not harmed by even slight problems of mental afflictions. They're kind of scared off. It's not that they never happen, but it's as if you intimidated them. And in two ways, they don't come up frequently, not nearly as frequently as before. And when they do, they kind of cringe, like, Excuse me, sir. I'd like to make you pissed off. Would that be okay? Please don't hit me. I'd kind of like to get really pissed off. Would that be okay? Please. I want to get you pissed. Please. Please. <laughs> don't, don't hurt me. <laughs> you know? Quite literally, the, the five obscurations, including ill will, they're not wiped out. They're not eradicated. But Tsongkhapa says, you know, just generally speaking, your mental afflictions don't arise as frequently, and they don't have that power to grab you as they had before. So... Within the fields of experience of your five senses, many unprecedented appearances arise, a lot of nyam, and the best, medi the me best mental state is said to be like 
the gentle flow of a great river, and that is the intermediate phase of shamatha. Of shamatha. So very clear. So we'll stop there in the text. But it's, I think it's really quite interesting and, and happily surprising that after he's gone from stage of stage regeneration, I mean that's a very profound practice, detailed shamatha, detailed vipassana, detailed identification of pristine awareness, and then detailed how do you sustain that, then he takes us right back with showing signs that you've really done the preliminary practices, and then he's really unpacking shamatha in a way that he did not before. Just stage by stage and really focusing, I will say, my interpretation on one method. And the one method is m- that is most common for the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions, and that's taking the mind as a path. Right? There's some really good stuff coming up, so we'll have to wait for next week for that. Uh, it just gets better and better. But, it, but he's coming back to this point, this great, great contemplative and teacher and scholar and writer. Uh, he's coming back to Shamatha. And we'll see a little bit later on. Uh, it's just, again, this kind of offhand, really casual comment that if you achieve shamatha, then extrasensory perception arises. You know? And that the mind, the body and mind are very supple, they're, they're, they're light, they're buoyant, and, be, and they're ready to be put into action. And how much more effective any meditation you, you can possibly do is once you've achieved shamatha. So, I won't belabor the point, then why isn't everybody practicing it? Why isn't this extremely widely taught? Why don't we have shamatha retreat centers all over the place? Because I don't have an answer to that. I thought about it a little. I can always talk, but um, not really interested in doing that. But the fact is that it's really not very common. Uh, and yet this is, this is a really main text, you know, and it's representing two traditions. And if you read Dijim Lingba, then you'll see he's saying exactly the same thing. You know? I mean, exactly, and Songkaba says exactly the same thing. And so, this has always been important. Uh, and what happens ever so often is people skip this, marginalize this, they do one month and say, oh, I did a month of shamatha, and then move right on as if that was something really special. After they've done maybe 100,000 of this and 100,000 of that, as if that was something really special. Maybe it was. Often it's not. And so he's coming back here, so the timing is so interesting. Because he could have put all of this in the shamatha chapter. What would have been easier than that? And then skip this chapter. Say, we've come to practice, let's just go right to the direct crossing over, Atta Yoga, which is the very next chapter. Uh, But he doesn't. He comes back here. And so this has been always important. The Buddha emphasized it, emphasized by the great great pundits, the great siddhas of India, and right on through. But now just, we have just a few minutes. I'd just like to bring it back into the 21st century, just to highlight some points that if you ask almost anybody, an intelligent, educated people as well as not so intelligent, not very educated people, but ask almost anybody, including go to almost any university, including very fine ones like Stanford, very fine university, and Harvard, and Cambridge, the Sorbonne, and so forth and so on, and you ask almost anybody, um, uh, what, 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 I've heard about, you know, you pretend as if you're really ignorant, and say, uh, I've heard about Buddhism. What is that? Is that is that a is that a, a science or is it a philosophy? You'll almost certainly be told by everybody. No, it's, it's one of the the world's religions. I mean, wh- where have you been living? It's one of the world's religions. You know, like Christianity, Hinduism, Taoism. It's one of the world's religions, and that's the end of the conversation. And if you want to study it, with a few exceptions, but very very few, if you want to study it in, a- in academia 
or if you want to go to a library or, or, or library or a bookstore and you like to pick up you like to pick up some books on Buddhism what part of the library or the bookstore are you going to find it in not psychology Pr not philosophy either that's human content Plato you're going to find it probably under Eastern religions or if it's not a very big big bookstore or library just well just religions and you find them all mushed together all of them mushed together you know with their sacred texts and commentaries and so forth and that's where we put it that's the bin that's the bin the bin the can in which Buddhism has been placed um, very brief anecdote when I was after I've been teaching for four years at uh, University of California Santa Barbara with really the best religious studies department pub, uh, uh, no best religious studies department in the country there are divinity schools like Harvard, Yale, and so forth, but in terms of religious studies, best one. It's really outstanding. And I had a, a low-level position. I was, I was a lecturer there for four years. But there was, it seemed to be, there was a possibility that I might be granted an endowed chair there. And a lot of money had been raised by people hoping that I would get that. Um, and so I'd been there and been teaching a lot of classes, basically doing all the work of a full professor. And then I was invited to give a talk to the colloquium of just faculty and graduate students in the department. They're very nice people, actually. They, they get along well. They're nice people. And, uh, and so, but they had just about raised enough money, not the university, but patrons, benefactors from the surrounding community, raised just about enough money to actually start uh, doing a search to fill the endowed chair. And uh, so I was asked to please give a talk uh, before the faculty and graduate students give a talk, because they'd never heard, you know, a few graduate students heard me sp speak, and a lot of undergraduates, and I had my own graduate students, but not the faculty. We don't drop into each other's lectures very often. And so I thought about it, and I thought, you know, because I thought at that time I might have a real chance for that position, and it was the Dalai Lama endowed chair, a way I could serve my guru. So there was some hope that I would get it. That is my hope. But I thought very carefully about it, and I thought, you know, I don't want anybody to be surprised in the faculty and so forth about what my perspective is. Because if I should try to be political and clever and diplomatic and tell them just what they want to hear, and I could have, I mean I think I could have, uh, then I would be getting in and then I'd surprise them afterwards. And so I said, well, why don't I just be totally transparent and tell them what I really think? <laughs> You didn't think that's going to turn out well? <laughs> so I decided on two topics that I would present that nobody else was talking about. <laughs> and with great passion, and uh, I think I was very clear. <laughs> I first of all argued that, um, that scientific materialism should be treated as, as a religion and should be taught in religious studies department. <laughs> as an ersatz religion, because it has all the marks of a religion. They, ha they convert, they evangelize, it's all faith-based. But I think we should take it out of the psychology, biology, chemistry departments, out of the psychology, and bring it here, because this is a substitute for religion. It's an ersatz religion, and we should be teaching it here. Their response was kind of like yours right now. Um, <laughs> But I wasn't finished, <laughs> and I said, 
On the other hand, I think we should treat Buddhism as a very multifaceted phenomenon in which it has religious elements, but also scientific elements and philosophical elements, and that the study of Buddhism should be parsed out in, in, in different fields, different disciplines, and not be held entirely in religious studies, which is where it was entirely contained. Uh, so the scientific aspect should be taught in like psychology and so forth. Philosophical aspects, like Madhyamic and so forth, should be taught in philosophy. And the response was, And my wife told me, <laughs> Alan, you just sealed your fate. And I did, and it was good. It was good. They made the right decision. And I made the right decision too. And the person who's holding that position is a very good man, and he's doing a very good job. Much better, frankly, than I would have. And so it all worked out well. The point here, it's a kind of a fun story. It's, it's become a happy memory. It wasn't for a while. <laughs> I won't go into all the details. It's not, they're not interesting, because I'm so, so content with what's, you know, my life right now. Um, but the point being this, this shamatha, little old shamatha, if it's true what they're saying, that this, has been path, this path has been followed by many, many people, and that extrasensory perception, such as, I asked Yang Tanabuchi about this, and he confirmed it, if you achieve shamatha, can you, just access to the first jhana, can you recall past lives? He said, yeah, yeah. And then extrasensory perception, knowing other people's minds. We just had that, right? Clairvoyance, clairaudience, maybe some premonitions, precogni precognition. These are just very normal. Which means if this is true, this is the most brilliant science of mind on the planet. Together with some really strong contenders like Hinduism and Taoism and so forth. But this is spectacular because that has the methods. We have these self-emergent, people who are naturally gifted, you know, clairvoyants and natural healers and so forth. It's a wonderful thing, but it's hard to study. I mean, you don't know how it happened. And when, when scientists, very good ones, like Richard Davidson at University of Wisconsin, studied yogis who meditated for 40,000 hours and sees their brains are unusual. But he's, as he's the first to acknowledge, he doesn't know how it happened. Were they born that way? Did it happen all at once? Did it happen incrementally? thousand hour by thousand hour, they don't have a clue. And moreover, the scientists have their own area of specialization, and that does not include stage regeneration and completion. <laughs> Which means, you know, the yogis are doing things they don't know anything about at all. And so it really strikes me that we are in many ways, and some of them very good ways, in an unprecedented state, situation, phase of human history here. Because this is still alive. People like Yang Tanabuchi, who has achieved Shamadev, Pashina, Dzogchen, has achieved it fully. Gautanabuchi said, definitely. You know, they're still alive. Not a lot of them, I don't think, but they are still alive. The transmission is still there. A number of us, from Chudanabuchi, from Geshe Raptin, from Yang Tanabuchi, from my own teacher Gautanabuchi, from His Holiness, from Chokye Tichanabuchi, and so forth and so on. I mean, a, a number of us, you know, especially the gray-haired ones, we've receive teachings from these people who are really, we're not just imagining they're pure, they really are, you know, have profound realization. So we got a living Dharma. That's what we got, my generation. That's what we got. Even young, young, younger ones, uh, like Inigo uh, here, uh, yes, you're getting living Dharma, and you can still have access. You, as, as a 20-year-old, can, can Inigo, uh, in, in, uh, 
Inigo. Can he find, you know, could he find, if he goes to India or to Sikkim or what have you, could he find people a tremendously deep realization? And not simply have to imagine them pure, they are pure. The answer is yes, it's still true. But my strong, strong sense is we've got to get, as, as a Buddhist speaking to people who, you know, are Buddhist or very sympathetic Buddhism, that's all. Uh, we've got to get Buddhism out of the bag. We've got to get it out of the box. Because as soon as you put something in the box of religion, then that's where people piss. Lots of people piss. You know, I mean, how many of you have been conditioned? You know, by religion is stupid. Religion's for dumb people. Religion's for believers. Religion's for people who don't understand science. People low IQ, fanatics, dreamy, woolly-eyed people. And there's plenty of evidence for that. But then to put all of Buddha Dharma into that, for that matter, to put all of Christianity into that, well, that's just dumb. But it's dumb mainstream. Mainstream dumb. Because we're ethnocentric. We see something like people wearing robes, like Lama Chanjup's robes, or mine is a, is a, as a yogi's robe, or, oh, you're religious. Or, oh, that's an altar. Okay, gotcha. No more thought. We don't need to think anymore. This is a religion. We've got an altar. We've got people bowing, got robes. It's a religion. Okay, now we don't have to think about it anymore. That means you don't have anything to tell us because you're religious people. And we're scientists, you know. Completely oblivious of the fact of how much metaphysical baggage is suffusing the whole scientific community. Completely oblivious. It's astonishing how unaware the general community is about the burden of beliefs they're carrying which they're not even acknowledging as beliefs. So I'm here not, not to point, make a complaint, but saying there's something that I think is very close. And that is collaboration. There are people practicing shamanism very seriously right now, in Tibet, for example. Seriously. Zongsa Kinsidamuch has 800 students in full-time retreat. Three of them in lifelong retreat. And I, and I have it on good authority from Matthew Ricard. A number of them are practicing shamatha. So it's not, not like nobody's doing it. Uh, but it's still back in Tibet. And it looks like religion. right? To bring this, this is not secret. This is not secret. This is not Vajrayana. This is not Dzogchen. This is just ordinary old kitchen sink shamatha. You can talk about it to anybody you want to. You can practice it publicly. You can bring in scientists. To have that happen, where open-minded scientists, preferably some who might actually like to taste, you know, taste the food, try shamatha themselves, and to transparently have groups of people some in Brazil, some in Tuscany, some in California, some in wherever, and have this become transparent. So from the beginning, however it turns out, it will be known. This is good science. Good science is you run an experiment, it crashes and burns and you get terrible results, you publish. You don't cover it over, like, you know, covering, like a, as Gertrude which is like a kitty covering over its poop, you know, with sand. Ooh, don't, don't let anybody know about that, you know? No, whatever it is. Good science is, if the results are not what you expected, not what you hoped for, you publish, you make it known. That's good science. Imagine this, though. And especially if you have multiple people coming in from dif different traditions, Christian, Taoist, and so forth. Imagine this being totally transparent, creating the, creating the environment, inviting the scientists to come in deferentially, respectfully, to work with, in collaboration with, people who are being professionally trained, in something they have no professional training in. So there's again complementarity. Imagine out of that, you know, in five years, 
you had five, ten, fifteen people achieving shamatha and displaying, uh, showing that they could read other people's minds. I mean, that's easy to test. Really, really easy to test. What am I thinking? Well, you know, they don't unless they have clairvoyance. And likewise, past life recall. Then, good, under laboratory con- controlled situation, good. See whether it's a memory or a fantasy. It's not that hard. But what is remarkable here, unprecedented, which isn't even happening at the University of Virginia, where they've studied all these children who just happen to recall past life, and no way of, rec- of, of predicting which child will recall and which will not. They just happen, okay? Uh, this is people coming in without paranormal abilities, without past life recall, without clairvoyance and so forth, and then through this rigorous training, which is completely transparent, they come out, in which case, if it happens, nobody in his right mind can say, oh, you must be demon-possessed, which is what happened 500 years ago. If people showed clairvoyance, paranormal abilities and so forth, they were either a saint, they'd be worshipped as divinely inspired, or, but that's probably not very likely, so in case of doubt, burn them. And that's what happened. Because it's mysterious. You don't know why they're doing this. And demonic possession was very, as real to people in the 16th century as getting the flu is to people in the 21st century. It's an infection. You're possessed. You're dangerous. You're contagious. You're demonically possessed. That could catch. You might get the whole town, you know, turn diabolical. And that's because they didn't know where it's coming from. It, and they only had two options, either God or the devil, probably devil. And so, if this should happen in a completely transparent way, and this would demonstrate it, boy, that would be big. And it doesn't have to be thousands of people. It could be dozens of people. Literally. Dozens of people? Dozens of people. I read a number, something like 500,000 neuroscientists worldwide. It's a big number. Lots. It's a lot. Maybe maybe it's 100,000, but it's a lot. Consider all of China, all of Europe, all of America. Uh, a few dozen yogis, well-trained, achieving shamatha, and then showing what happens. All with the very careful supervision by our masters, Gyawang Kamapa, you know, His Holiness Dalai Lama, Sakyatinsirinbache, and other greats. The, the young, the young uh, Dujum Lingba, you know, it looked like he's going to be really a great one. Seems like he already is, and he's only in his 20s. So, what could that mean for the world? To show in this very relaxed but utterly transparent way, which no one in his right mind could conceive of, oh, you're pushing a religion. So wait a minute, which part was religious? Following your breath, is that religious? Observing your thoughts? What are you talking about? Where was that? You know? What would be impact on that? And moreover, not just knowledge and power, because that's what the West really likes. But if it's all suffused with eudaimonia and with virtue. When you see these same people that have this extraordinary samadhi, these powers and so forth, and they're just exceptionally benevolent, kind, compassionate, virtuous, thoughtful, sensitive, generous spirit. And you're seeing it all in the same person, but then it's not just, oh, you must be an avatar. Oh, you must be a tuku. No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. No, I was ordinary guy, but I put in five years of training, and this, and, and and by the way, you, you checked me five years ago, right? And you checked me four years ago, and you you monitored, so it's all transparent, you know. That could be quite something. So we'll end on this note.
It's a little bit after, but no, just to be very short. Just one quote. But could it happen? And if you, if you go out and ask various geishas and kempos, in fact, you'll get different answers. I know, I've done it. And some of them will say, Oh, da, nikbe, nikbe du shus resha da, sem rakpa shus da rewa yo marta, da sem karasa nadambe chu bete nyam sa sonda, da rewa magya, locho yawa che, enche yawa che, suti mi yawa su, yene da, shine da yoyam endu. That was a pretty good invitation. Ah, loa? Yeah, yeah. No, it's at the time. This is really degenerate times. This is really hard times. Very coarse time. People have heavy mental afflictions. You really can't achieve shamatha. It's hopeless. You'll ne- don't even. Don't try. Don't study well. Teach. Be a good person. That's good enough. Pray to be born in Sukhavati. That's good enough. But don't get your hopes up. No, no shamatha. Time, time for shamatha is past. Let alone vipassana. And the, oh no no. Tr- but get good imprints. That would be good. Before you die, get some good imprints. Have some souvenirs. <laughs> So you'll hear that. And then you'll hear people like His Holiness Dalai Lama, who I tend to listen to more, saying, this is possible, and you should really do it. Gyatrinamacha the same, Gesharapna the same, Geshingamataiki the same, and that not just my lamas. But I asked Yangtranamacha, what do you think? Could people, ordinary Western people, do you think they could achieve shamatha? Fully achieve shamatha, not cutting corners, which everybody wants to do. You know, they want to do it with EG, they want to do it with vitamins and supplements, they want to do it with video games, they w- anything for a shortcut, you know. We have to show how we're superior to those brown people. I think there's a lot of racism in it, or just ethnocentric bullshit, you know, that we're so smart, we're so scientific, we'll find a much faster way. How many times I've heard this, what took the Zen yogis many, many years, try this on, and you can do it much, much faster. And no reference to ethics, no reference to motivation, it's really cool. That's, that's extremely common. And man, people are making millions of dollars off this kind of stuff. So it's very common. But could it happen? The authentic one, the gold standard, no cutting corners, fully achieve shamatha, and then use that as a platform. Really realize the emptiness of your mind. Really identify pristine awareness. Really sustain that. Really. All the way. Gold all the way. Is it possible? For tukus, who, of course, of course. You're the fifth, you're the fifth, fifth tuku of somebody who achieved enlightenment 300 years ago. Yeah, but probably you, did, you already achieved it anyway. But for ordinary people, is it possible? And I asked Yandranabhaje, and he said, that, dagyure. <laughs> that's to be seen. Dagyure, that's to be seen. He didn't say no, nor did, was he like a salesman saying, oh, definitely, you people can do it, sure, go for it. He didn't do that either. He just said, that, that, dagyure. He's very serene. So, where do you stand? I'm asking everybody listening. Podcast, where do you stand? What do you believe? And this is where we have the quote and we go to dinner. And you've heard it before, but it's so juicy I'm going to read it before another time. In what manner do we espouse and hold fast to visions? I just gave you a vision. And a lot of you have it on your own. I didn't come up with it all by myself. In what manner do we espouse that is, articulate, express, and hold fast to visions. How do we become visionaries, right? By thinking a conception might be true somewhere. Might be true. That contemplative community of Zonsai Kensidrimbuji back in Kang, there m- it might be people fully achieving shamatha there right now. 300 of them in full lifelong retreat. 
and some of them practicing samadhi, they could be achieving it right now. That might be true. It might be true somewhere. It may be true even here and now. Maybe there's someone in Australia, maybe even in Queensland, who's very deep in shamatha or has actually achieved shamatha. It could be true, it might be true. How do we know? Right? It may be true even here and now. It is fit to be true, and it ought to be true. It must be true. It shall be true for me. William James. And that's where belief itself creates reality. No belief, that reality doesn't happen. It's one of those. No belief, reality doesn't happen. Sit on the fence, who knows, maybe, maybe so, let's watch. As if we're, you know, sitting on the benches and reality is being played out there on the, on the playing field by professionals. Let's watch, let's see what happens. Yeah, you can do that, that's always, always a possibility. Reality as a spectator sport. Life as a spectator sport. Watch whether other people can do it. That's a possibility. You can decide no. That's certainly, that's relaxing. Gives you a lot of time to do other things. Or you can decide to believe exactly in that sequence that William just gave us. And then say, it must be true. It must be true for me. I will make it so. Ever heard that one? Why couldn't? May it be so? I will make it so. Buddhism said that before William James. Yeah. So good. So tomorrow's my day off. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I start dreading my days off. Oh no, more work than usual. No, I look forward to seeing uh, Glenn's students, or also my students. Very happy to see you tomorrow at 10. I have some interview I need to do at 11, so I have to keep it fairly short. And then we'll gather here and uh, practice once this sadhana, uh, once through, so we get some, some taste of it. Yeah. And tomorrow, try a one-day retreat. One-day retreat, as if you're at home and it's Sunday. And this is somebody else is cooking for you, taking care of your room, quiet, relatively. Quiet enough. One-day retreat. Try one-day retreat tomorrow. And then Monday, ladies and gentlemen, we're now approaching our final descent. And we encourage you to stand up and walk all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> and talk at dinner time. So, see you soon. See you soon.